Welcome to Peak True Crime, a podcast telling of dark tales and dastardly deeds in Derbyshire and the Peak District. Altmonton, 2005. According to the latest available data, 110 UK women were killed by men in 2020, with 111 men implicated in their killings. To date, however, less than 80 men have been found or pleaded guilty to the crime, or who otherwise would have been held responsible for it, were it not for the fact that the perpetrator was detained under the Mental Health Act or died by suicide prior to conviction. We don't know this because the data is centrally collected by the government, or because individual police forces have a duty to report such deaths. We know this because of the incredible work of the charity, the Femicide Census. Launched in 2015, the Femicide Census was founded by Karen Ingella Smith and Clarissa O'Callaghan. It was inspired by information collected by Karen and recorded in a blog, Counting Dead Women. Today, the pair are responsible for producing an annual report which not only catalogues each instance in which a woman dies as the result of violence inflicted upon her by a man, but also identifies trends and risk factors common in certain subgroups of killings. The point is not just to remember the victims, but to understand and to help define the trends behind such shocking crimes. Of the 110 incidents of femicide in 2020, 57 women, 52%, were killed by a current or former partner. Described as intimate partner homicide, it occurs in the context of ongoing abuse and domestic violence. Overall, the research suggests that periods of separation or after a separation are high risk times for intimate partner homicides. The UK government's 2019 Domestic Homicide Review found that a breakup or the beginning of a breakup was a key factor in 59% of all domestic homicides, confirming the findings of a study by the University of Leicester that found that 60% of women who were killed by their partner had either left or were in the process of leaving. When Stella Moore, mother of 27-year-old show jumper Tanya Moore, pulled up at the police cordon on the edge of the Derbyshire village of Ockmonton, she feared the worst. Tanya hadn't come home from visiting a friend. Tanya wasn't answering her phone or answering texts, and Stella was worried. She headed out to see if she could find her. The officer Stella met, who was manning the cordon, explained that a car had come off the road, the driver suffering fatal injuries. Was the vehicle a white Volkswagen Polo? Stella asked. The officer's face told her before the words had left his lips. Stella knew the victim was Tanya, and she immediately knew who was responsible. Her one-time son-in-law-to-be, the 35-year-old Mark Dyche.
Tanya had a very affectionate laugh. When Tanya laughed, her mum explained, you laugh too. She's a very bubbly girl. Originally from Ireland, Tanya and her parents moved to England just after she was born. The dream of a family starting a new life in the heart of the Derbyshire Dale suffered a setback, however, with the separation of her mum and dad, her father Paddy returning to Ireland when she was still a child. This didn't cast too great a shadow over Tanya's early years. She left Queen Elizabeth Grammar School in Ashbourne, not just with excellent exam results. She did ballet and tap dancing, played in the school hockey team. She was an active, popular teenager and enjoyed growing up just outside the small market town of Ashbourne almost as much as her friends cherished her company. Beyond all that though, her one true love and enduring love was horses. She'd ridden as soon as she could walk, her first horse being a Shetland pony, a birthday present from Stella, her mum. Hugely motivated and highly competitive, she surpassed the infatuation lots of young girls have for horses, becoming a successful show jumper, and after graduating from Nottingham Trent University, she eventually went on to run her own riding school and livery stables at the farm she shared with her mum. It was hard work, with long hours and huge responsibility. But it had been Tanya's dream for as long as anyone could remember to work with horses, and the fact that she achieved this by the age of 25 was not only a testament to her own drive and determination, but also the love and support of her family. Tanya met Daish on a night out in the nearby market town of Ashbourne picturesque but beautifully vibrant town on the southern edge of the Peak District National Park, some 13 miles northwest of Derby. At first glance, the pair weren't an obvious couple. Ten years her senior, Dyche was a labourer who liked to drink, liked to laugh too. Out of necessity rather than desire, he still lived with his mum in Marston Montgomery, just four miles west of Alt Moulton. A Jack the Lad, was how more than one person who knew the couple described him. Stella described their relationship in altogether different tones. He didn't seem to have any friends, and those people who did associate with him, they seemed to be a lot younger than him, which struck me as a bit odd. After some early reluctance on the part of Tanya, the pair began seeing more and more of each other. Stella wasn't necessarily worried but just surprised and cautious, therefore, when, within a year, the pair announced their engagement. It wasn't until early 2003, just months after the surprise engagement, that Tanya began to realise there were problems in the relationship. Daesh flipped between being distant and detached to overwhelming to the point of suffocation. Tanya confirmed to her mum, as well as close friends, that she believed he was having an affair, a suspicion which turned out to be correct. She wanted to call off the engagement and, to Tanya's relief, it seemed Daesh had come to the same conclusion, that their relationship had run its course and with, if not fondness, but the least civility, the pair split 
in February 2003. Not Tanya, not her mother, not her friends. Nobody would have dared to imagine that what was later described in court as a possessive, jealous and obsessive campaign of intimidation and violence would occur. Now, in a very public relationship with his one secret lover, a friend of Tanya's no less, Daesh began making disparaging comments about Tanya around the town, slandering her and issuing threats against her to anyone that had listened. What started as whispers behind her back and dirty looks when they saw each other graduated to snide comments designed for her to hear and the spreading of lies and malice. This crusade to discredit, socially isolate and intimidate Tanya quickly escalated however when, while out drinking with friends in her local, Daesh approached Tanya and without saying a word poured a pint of beer over her head. He then grabbed her by her hair and threatened that he'd smash the empty glass into her face. As fellow drinkers intervened, Tanya slipped free of Daesh, and with her hair drenched and sticky, her heart pumping with fear, she fled outside to a car to make an escape, only to discover it vandalised and unable to start. When incidents such as this occur, women are told that the thing to do is report the assault to the police, that in doing so, they'll not only be protected by the authorities, but also that it'll limit the assailant's opportunity to threaten them again. And that's what Tanya did. She reported the attack to the police, whom arrested Daesh before bailing him under investigation. He was ordered not to approach Tanya, her family, or visit the family home or livery yard. In the policing handbook, in the outcomes of best practice, that would have been the end of the matter. Daesh would abide by the terms of his bail. The justice system would make a judgement on the case, and that would be that. But that wasn't the case. On another night, out in Ashbourne just weeks later, Daesh assaulted Tanya again, this time kicking her to the ground before again others intervened on behalf. Again she reported him to the police. Again, nothing changed. Nothing more was done. And throughout the spring of 2003, the terrorising of Tanya continued. Text started to arrive on Tanya's mobile. I'm watching you, read one. Watch you back, read another. On a trip to London, to escape the claustrophobic sense of unease Daesh was inflicting on her, Tanya received messages from him, noting the places she was visiting, the meals out she was eating, the shoes she was trying on in the shop. Male friends were threatened to stay away from Tanya or face reprisals. On one occasion... On leaving a pub where Tanya was drinking with friends, Daesh made the shape of a gun with his hand as he walked out of the door, took aim at Tanya and mimed taking a shot. But by June that year, things were about to get worse. Daesh's physical and emotional intimidations took a horrific turn. It was just before 10 in the morning, and as usual, Tanya was out at the stables across the courtyard from her home, 
feeding and cleaning out the horses. As usual, she was accompanied by a dog, Katie, and with a pair up to the rears in straw bedding, something around the front of the house caught Katie's attention. The dog ran off around the corner to investigate, leaving Tanya continuing with her work. Within seconds, out of nowhere, a hand grabbed Tanya by her shoulder and span around, the free hand instantly landing a punch to her face. Pushing to get past her assailant, they both lost their footing and fell to the ground. The man got to his feet and pinned her by the chest to the ground with his boot. From under his coat, the man pulled out a baseball bat and set about her legs, raining two or three blows down on her before fleeing the scene. But not before a second, slighter-built man descended on her, removed an expensive Tag Heuer watch from her wrist and snatched her mobile phone. Just managing to drag herself across the cobbles and into the house, Tanya called an ambulance and was taken to hospital, where she was treated with bruising and swelling to her head, face and legs. Despite not recognising either of the attackers, Tanya was able to provide the police with a comprehensive description of the two men, even going as far as to locate the accents as being from the neighbouring county of Staffordshire. Interviewed by police at her bedside, Tanya was able to provide detectives with a firm lead. While neither were him, the man ultimately responsible was Mark Dyche. Home Farm was an isolated property, off the main road and down a long country trail. The chances of such a violent robbery being speculative were as remote as the location of the farm. On returning home from hospital, the text continued, increased in menace and intent. Fearing for her daughter's safety, Stella reported the message to the police, their responses being that the inquiry into the tax was in progress and that the pair should keep a record of all the messages. With recovery from her injuries ongoing, and a desire to return to her work with the horses, Tanya drew upon huge reserves of strength and willpower. She explained that the incident had left her feeling frightened and extremely vulnerable. I no longer feel safe in my own home, she said. I wish the people responsible be held responsible for their actions. Two thousand and three passed into two thousand and four. Though her physical wounds were healed, Tanya was still struggling to regain her confidence. She refused to be cowed though, getting back into the work she loved and gradually starting seeing more and more of her friends, the friends that had been so supportive to her. While seemingly little progress was being made in the investigation into her attack, and with the threat still a daily arrival on her phone, Stella and Tanya compiled a complete record of all the malicious and threatening communication they received, both from Daesh directly and a litany of unknown and anonymous numbers. The bundle was delivered to the police station in Ashbourne in the beginning of March, and marked through the attention of the officer in charge of her case. This represented an attempt not only to capture the scale of the threats against Tanya, but also an attempt to force some sort of response from Derbyshire Police. And all the while, despite the cloud hanging over her, Tanya had rebuilt her life 
and on the evening of the 29th of March, she was out visiting a friend. As usual, she drove there in her beloved little white Volkswagen Polo, telling Stella that she wouldn't be late. Such arrangements were part of the pair's usual routine. Safety and peace of mind being a prime concern to both the mother and the daughter. 8pm came and went. So did 9pm. A nervous but resolute Stella decided that instead of sitting up, worrying, she'd go to bed. Tanya needed some space to grow her confidence, and the natural worry of her mother needed to be put aside to allow for that. Rest was hard to come by, though, and when calls to Tanya's mobile went unanswered, she set out in the car, as much to feel as she was doing something than anything else. It was less than a minute from turning left out of the long driveway to home farm that the flashing lights of the emergency services would have come into view. Just minutes before the discovery that the reason for such a presence was that little white Volkswagen Polo that had left the road and crashed, the driver discovered dead at the wheel. Just minutes before the name Mark Dyche again left Stella's lips. Dyche was arrested the morning after Tanya's death. Discovered by officers eating in a cafe 55 miles away in Doncaster, he was brought back to Derbyshire for interview. When questioned as to his whereabouts the previous evening, he confidently responded that he'd been with his girlfriend, previous pal of Tanya, Helen Wood. From the morning of the 30th of March 2004, from the point at which Dyche was arrested by officers from South Yorkshire Police on suspicion of Tanya's murder, one thing dawned on detectives of Derbyshire Constabulary investigating the case. It was how utterly and completely Tanya had been let down by their force. Enough for that to be a home farm where Tanya 
a lift with her mum Stella um, but she'd have probably been driving in this direction uh, the fields around are all flat and farmed the sheep in some of them well in most of them and there's old trees surrounding it and it's quite a straight road really um, and as I say I don't I'm not entirely sure whereabouts along the road Tanya was, was forced from the road. Uh, I know it was very close to home and I think it should be somewhere along here. I assume it's on the, the you know, somewhere near the direction that I'm travelling in. But um, it's difficult to tell. see though that there's lots of small little sidings and places where a car could hide essentially, lay in wait, which is what Dice did um, to force Tanya from the road. And so I'm just just approaching up Munton now and Oh, well, there's, uh, on, on my right-hand side, so, um, just to the right-hand side of where I've just passed, there is a tree, and it seems to have a small memorial on it, so I'm just pulling up now. Um, I've pulled up just, just before the sign for Altmonton, which is the village where she lived. Um, and there's a red brick farm building and it's got farm machinery on it um, so what I'm probably going to do now is um, I'll probably hop out and um, I'll go and have a look and see if that's see if I was right Right now I'm on the side of Long Lane and in front of me is what I think is a hawthorn tree um, and on it are one, two, three Christmas wreaths um, and beneath it in small plastic covers are Christmas cards. Um, it's beginning of May now so the weather's taken its toll on them but you can see that one's addressed to a daughter and I can't I can't quite make out the other one but it, I think this is probably the spot or as close to it as as where Tanya lost her life. Um, all alongside there's cowslip, I think, the little kind of ubiquitous roadside flower. Um, I live in quite a semi-rural place now, but I grew up in the 
suburbs of South Manchester. So all of my parents did take me to kind of National Trust places and stomping through the countryside. Um, I really was just more interested in poking things with sticks than listening when I was told what things were called. So I'm, I'm not really very good at that. But as I stand here, you can look off over the over the hedge to the left-hand side, and there I think is Home Farm. And I think back to one of the first cases I covered, which was the murder in Cromford. Lorraine's mum, where they lived overlooked the cemetery and there were interviews with her and she said about how she took comfort from the fact that she could look out of her window and see where where Lorraine was buried and I wonder whether Stella who was Tanya's mum took comfort from as well as pain took comfort from the fact that she could see the memorial that they'd had created. I mean, it's an old established tree, but I'm sure she could have seen it from the windows of Home Farm. I think now then would be a time to go and go from here, which is a, the site of where it would have happened. It's so close to the village. I can, if I look round now, I can see the sign for the village, and just beyond that is a right turn. And if you turn right there and carry on a little bit, and I think turn right again, you go down the long path, and that takes you to home. It would have been such a short drive. I talked about how Stella came out to try and see where Tanya was when he, she wasn't home when she said she was going to be home and they were all so anxious about everything that was going on and the threats and she'd have driven out and it would have literally been a couple of minutes before she came across that line of tape and approached the police officer that was there and and almost instantly she knew she knew what had happened she knew she knew that Tanya was dead that she'd been killed and she knew who did it so I think right now we'll hop back in the car and we'll drive to the cemetery in Ashbourne where where Tanya was was laid to rest As news began to spread of Tanya's murder, both by word of mouth and in the media, two things occurred almost immediately. Firstly, 
as different areas of Derbyshire Police began looking into any interactions they'd had with either Tanya or the suspect Daesh, it became clear that something had gone badly wrong. The envelope, containing the dossier of threatening text messages directed at Tanya was discovered, unopened, at the police station in Ashbourne. Also, as connections between the earlier assault Tanya had suffered at her home and her death were examined, it appeared very little investigative work had taken place at all. There had been no forensic examination of the scene. Photo fits of the two assailants, drawn from their clear descriptions Tanya had provided while in hospital, had barely been circulated beyond the officers directly involved in the case. Directly involved in the case. Despite Tanya clearly stating when interviewed that though she didn't recognise the men, she was confident that their accents were from the neighbouring Staffordshire, Staffordshire police hadn't been informed of the attack, let alone asked for assistance. Shockingly, it turned out that although Tanya and her family had explained to the police about the campaign of threats and intimidation, Daesh had been warring against Tanya, no attempt to contact him was made by anyone, either formally or informally. Also, it later transpired that there was no record of the eight interactions Tanya had had with the police call centre which, she was led to believe, was a point of contact regarding the malicious text she'd been receiving. Most shockingly of all, though, was that just two weeks earlier, Mark Dyche, a man under investigation for the physical and online intimidation of Tanya, a man whose name the police had in connection to the attack at the farm eight months previously, was reissued with a firearms licence and his weapons returned, after confiscation, as he'd let his licence expire. And why was this so significant beyond the gross negligence of the police? Within an hour of finding Tanya slumped dead in front of her car, it was established that she'd been killed not as a result of the car leaving the road, but by a near point-blank shotgun wound to the head. The second thing almost immediately occurred after Tanya's murder was that, within 24 hours, the police started receiving tip-offs from individuals willing to provide statements that corroborated the investigators' suspicions. One such piece of intelligence, which came from more than one source, told how Daesh was offering £50,000 to anyone that was willing to kill Tanya. Three men, John Booth, Darrell Worsdale and Craig Stoner, the getaway driver, came forward to say that, at the bidding of Daesh, they were responsible for the attack and robbery of Tanya at the farmhouse the previous year. After confessing to the investigator Daesh's request that as part of the attack they take back the watch he'd bought her and steal her mobile phone, they explained that the trio had received a total of £2,000 for the assault, with the cash in the first place being provided to Daesh in the form of a loan, a loan from his girlfriend and former friend of Tanya, Helen Wood. It wouldn't be until the trial at Nottingham Crown Court in April 2005 that the full brutality of Tanya's killing at the hands of Mark Daesh was public, however. Standing in the dock alongside his accomplice, 41-year-old Colin Colley, 
the pair pled not guilty to murder, each blaming the other for pulling the trigger. These pleas necessitated a full trial, with days of testimony and cross-examination bringing into open a full and frank recounting of Tanya's murder. Peter Joyce QC, prosecuting for the Crown, first explained that, in the weeks leading up to the murder, Dyche, through friends and acquaintances, had sought to recruit someone to kill Tanya. A fee was being offered of £50,000, but when he failed to recruit a suitable candidate, he decided simply to do it himself. The plan, as it was explained to co-defendant Coley, was that Dyche would be in the passenger seat and be responsible for trailing Tanya's movements and identifying an appropriate place and time to strike. Coley denied knowing anything about the plan to murder Tanya and that his job was simply to force Tanya's car from the road, at which point Dyche would do nothing more than physically assault her. Coley accepted the fact that, as Dyche had bought a second-hand car with which to commit the act and insisted the pair wear disposable crop spraying overalls, he possibly should have been suspicious of a more sinister motive. It wasn't until Tanya's car was forced off the road and stationary, half in and half out of a farmer's field, Coley said that he feared Dyche had a more bloody plan in mind. Coley described to the silent court that, within a second of Tanya's car falling stationary, Dash was up and out of the car, pulling from somewhere a shotgun. Dash then ran over to the driver's side door and smashed through the side window with the butt of the gun before firing two shots into the vehicle in the direction of the driver. The pair then fled the scene, dumping the car and setting it alight. One witness, on learning of Tanya's death, contacted the police with Dash's name. That was Craig Stoner the getaway driver from the first attack on Tanya. He told the court that when Dyche was unable to find anyone to carry out the murder on his behalf, he tried to persuade Stoner to just be the driver. Stoner said how for two months prior to Tanya's death, Dyche would continue to approach him with further inducements to take part, offering more money, elaborating on further mitigations against the pair being caught. When I heard about Tanya, Stoner stated, I knew it would be a matter of time before I got caught for the robbery. Justice was going to be served somehow. The most compelling witness, however, was Dyche's former wife and mother of his two children, Paula Halliwell. She spoke quietly, but eloquently, of his obsessive nature, and of a time, long after the pair had separated, when he turned up at her home and scratched a knife across the window while issuing death threats. Paula also explained how despite legal restrictions being in place that stated he was not to contact her. She was once approached by him in public, brandishing a shotgun, the same shotgun the prosecution asserted that had been used to murder Tanya. There was also testimony from another former lover, who recalled returning to her home to find a cat shot dead and her horse mutilated just weeks after she'd split from Daesh. The alibi, provided by his girlfriend at the time of the killing, Helen Smith, was withdrawn before the trial, 
and she in fact gave evidence to the prosecution, testifying that on the night of the killing she was called to pick up Dyche from a remote spot just outside Stoke, a smouldering car just a few hundred yards from where she collected him. Explaining the circumstances around her initially providing what she admitted was an utterly false alibi for Dyche, Smith recalled that during the drive away from the burnt-out Nissan, after dropping Collie at home, she'd asked her boyfriend what happened. You don't want to know, he'd said. I was with you all night. All right? Smith denied any prior knowledge of the attack, and though acknowledged that while she was willing to cover for her boyfriend over a minor crime, on learning of Tanya's murder, she retracted and then modified her statement. She also explained that she was unaware at the time that the loan of £2,000 that paid for the attack on Tanya's home farm was to be used for that purpose. Instead, Smith believed, Daesh needed it to clear some debts. No charges were brought against Helen Smith. Finally, a ballistics expert was called to provide details of a modified shotgun cartridge that was used in the attack. Each cartridge contained fewer but larger ball bearings than a normal cartridge. The reason being, the expert speculated, that the larger the fragments that make contact with the flesh of the victim, the more bloody and brutal the damage each blast causes. To a silent courtroom, he explained that with the firing range it sorted it was, almost any cartridge contents would have proved fatal. The specific ones used, however, would have near obliterated the entire face of the victim. This prognosis was confirmed by pathology evidence derived from Tanya's post-mortem. By macabre coincidence, the use of larger bull bearings or pellets was a feature in the killing of Chris Brown and wounding of Samantha Stobbard by Ral Mote in 2010. Chris was the partner of Samantha, the mother of Mote's child. On release from prison for common assault and facing the realisation that their relationship was over, Moat first shot Chris with a cartridge of the larger, more brutal pellets, intending not only to kill, but entirely disfigure him beyond recognition. For Samantha, he used the smaller pellets, a desire being for her to live, but to do so with the scars that he'd inflicted upon her. As expected, Mark Dyche was found guilty of murder and conspiracy to rob, and received a life sentence with a minimum tariff for 30 years. In summing up, the judge, Mr Justice Bean, was unequivocal in his condemnation. You have been convicted by the jury on overwhelmingly clear evidence of the murder of Tanya Moore and of conspiracy to rob her. You were described by your own leading counsel as a loathsome individual. You have never expressed a shed of remorse or even regret that she is dead. You are a cold and ruthless killer and, in my judgment, a very dangerous man. Alongside him, Coley, his accomplice, having admitted to conspiracy to commit grievous bodily harm, was sentenced to ten years. It's something of a trope in true crime podcasting, that when a verdict's been reached and a sentence passed, the narrator offers a heartfelt quote from a member of the victim's family, who describes their daughter, brother or mother, and how they wanted them to be remembered how the victim had brought light to the lives of many, and how now, with that light, had been replaced to deadening darkness. I hope at this point 
have communicated how loved, admire and cherished Tanya was to those who knew her. That any quotes along those lines wouldn't tell you any more about her than I hope you already know. I therefore intend, as we start wrapping up this episode, to leave you with Tanya's own words. Words she spoke to her mum at the height of the campaign of hate and intimidation Daesh's waged against her. Words that communicate not only a fear for her own safety, but also a deep frustration that the police had seemingly left her to fend for herself. When I'm dead, she told Stella, then something will be done. a beautiful blue skied summer morning here in Ashbourne and I'm at Ashbourne Cemetery um, for full disclosure I after I recorded the piece at Long Lane where Tanya's body was found I came straight here it's about a 15 minute drive say and I couldn't find I spent about an hour here and I couldn't find the um, <laughs> um, I couldn't find Tanya's grave I was here for about an hour or so so I gave up and I've come back now a few days later and well like all things you can't find around the house it was in exactly the first place I looked um, so I'm stood kind of with my back to the entrance to the cemetery uh, and there's a, a lich gate behind me which is one of the kind of entrances to a church or a, or a cemetery that has a like it has a roof um, it's quite <laughs> I think I mentioned when I recorded down by down on Long Lane how there was um, there felt some sort of similarities between the proximity of the memorial that Stella had created for Tanya and that she could probably see it from their home and also the fact that Lorraine Underwood's mum could see her burial site from her home in Cromford and both both of those graveyards have got very very similar looking lich gates so it's I don't know it's just something that struck me when I saw them when I came originally I brought some flowers for Tanya there was um, on Long Lane at the, the memorial there there was um, some tulips growing so I brought a bunch of tulips to lay on her grave and I couldn't obviously I couldn't find it so I just left them here by the lich gate and there's some kind of commonwealth war graves on the right hand side um, and I just lay them there because I didn't really know what to do with them apart from that but um, 
so I've, I've come empty-handed today which I feel a bit bad about but anyway let's um it's up here on the left hand side so this the cemetery slopes quite it's quite steeply up it's flat for this little bit here but it goes up into a steep slope and it's probably about the size of it's probably about the area of a football pitch um it's quite it's quite well maintained the older graves are on the right hand side and the graves to on the left top left hand corner are kind of mid 20th century onwards and Tanya's is up in the left hand corner and like I said that's exactly where I, I started looking and I think the reason I missed it is because it's on the back row um, and it seems slightly ludicrous that I missed it at all because when you visit cemeteries and particularly the ones I've visited over the course of the podcast one thing you notice is how when people have died in tragic circumstances or the person who died was young or the death was unexpected quite often the graves have a different they're kept in a different way quite often they're especially for young people there's more trinkets and there's little keepsakes that friends or family have left and they sit on the grave and Tanya's is no exception there's the grave here now so I'm just I'm just in front of it now and there's a it's kind of grey marbled highly polished and it's in the shape of a of a book that's the pages open and it's looking out forward but in front of it there's a whole host of as I say little pottery trinkets and keepsakes that I guess people have left over time there's little mushrooms toadstools you know kind of like the ones you see in children's books that are red with white spots on um, sorry there's a, a van going past on the road um, there's um, little tiny ornaments of animals there's like little teddy bears there's lots of little fairies and all the animals are almost like cartoon characters and they're all sat nestled beneath the beneath the headstone and rushing out in front of it there's kind of pots of pansies that are out little purple pansies there's what I think are begonias um, and there's a tiny pot with a little little fuchsia starting to grow on the left hand page of the of the book that's open there's an inscription that reads treasured memories of Tanya Ann Moore beloved daughter sister and friend tragically taken from us on the 29th of March 2004 age 26 years old and nestled nestled beneath the um, <laughs> the little hippopotamuses and seagulls and the little menagerie that's collected around her there's, there's an inscription that reads gone is the face we love so dear silent is the voice that we love to hear 
you stand behind Tanya's gravestone, you can see, and it's something that's not really evident in the great many of the other gravestones here. Certainly not to the same extent, but I think I mentioned how the gravestone, the headstone is in the shape of a book. Well, on the back, on what would be the covers of the book, there's a there's a poem. Um, and it reads Tanya Time will not dim the face I love The voice I heard each day The many things you did for me In your own special way All my life I'll miss you As the years come and go But in my heart I'll keep you Because I love you so And I think it's just worth remembering that although Tanya, you know, her death was a complete tragedy, a terrible tragedy that really should never have happened. And if you Googled her name, you'd, her death would be the thing that first came up, pages of it about the pointlessness of a murder uh, but not the she was 26 years old she was a university graduate she was a show jumper she ran her own business that was doing the things she loved she had friends and family that loved her and you know, there are so, so few people who, when they pick up a hobby, when they're a kid, can turn that hobby into a life lived. You know, when Stella bought her that pony, when she was very, very young, from that point on, horses became part of her life and a life lived doing the things you love that's one hell of a life In normal circumstances, that would have been the end of any formal investigation into the murder of Tanya Moore. Family and friends would have been allowed to grieve her loss and those responsible would have been dealt with in line with the sentencing by the prison authorities. Tanya's family, however, despite their praise for the detectives who investigated her murder, believed that the police were responsible for failing to protect Tanya and ultimately her death. In my view, said Stella, none of the officers involved should be allowed to remain in the police force. An independent Police Complaints Commission report into the case made for sober reading. It found that Derbyshire Police had carried out no meaningful investigation into the attack on Tanya at Home Farm a year before she was killed. 
and identified over 150 individual failings. Formal statements were never taken from Tanya and her family. No forensic work was done at home farm. Records were never kept to the calls Tanya made regarding the thousands of threatening texts she received from Daesh. And Daesh, despite being named by Tanya, the family, as well as unconnected members of the public, was never once spoken to in relation to the attack at the farmhouse. Also unearthed during the independent investigation was evidence that, as recently as 1997, Daesh had been a confidential informant for the Staffordshire Police, and while it was concluded that it had no meaningful impact on how Tanya's case was initially investigated, it did speak to wider issues around communication and information sharing between Derbyshire and Staffordshire Police, forces that share a near 60-mile border. In the end, six officers were disciplined for what Amdeepa Samal, the IPCC commissioner who reviewed the case, described as an absolute dereliction of duty, as well as a collective failure by officers and their supervisors. Of those six officers, a detective was sacked, another officer demoted and four others, ranging from the rank of constable to chief inspector, were reprimanded. A seventh officer was cleared of any wrongdoing into how Derbyshire Police Force communicated with Staffordshire Police following the attack at Home Farm, as this was viewed to be an institutional failing and not the fault of just one individual. Derbyshire Police, in response to the report, issued a statement. They apologised to the Moore family. They said the police force had developed a domestic violence plan a new centralised referral unit for the risk assessment of potential domestic violent cases with new specialist officers and piloted a multi-agency assessment unit involving health and social services. For Tanya's family, none of this would bring her back. None of this could erase the dreadful loss inflicted upon them. In the next episode of Peak True Crime, which will be out next week, we'll be looking into another case of intimate partner homicide one that occurred just five years on from Tanya's murder in the June of 2010. A case in which the very changes that Derbyshire police said they'd made in the wake of Tanya's murder, their domestic violence plan, their multi-agency risk assessment unit, were put to the test and found tragically wanting. In order not to miss it, please subscribe to Peak True Crime wherever you get your podcasts.